We live inside a dream. Your ass looks like about 150 pounds of chewed bubblegum. Hello, and welcome to Stan and Dave Need Wedding Dates, uh, the only podcast exclusively about Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. Uh, we are your two favorite wimps who like Kubrick and Lynch. <laughs> my name is Eric Keppel. And my name is Jeremy Schmidt. Hello, nation. Hello, world. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. How are you? I hope you're okay. I hope you're staying safe out there. Um, it feels... How do you feel about doing a, a, an episode about Full Metal Jacket right now, Eric? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, I was, ju- I was just uh, you know, listening to a podcast where they were discussing that some of the, uh, some of the like, gear that police officers have are like more, uh, I guess... Uh, uh, for lack of a better word, like 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 some of the gear that police officers are able to use and have been using uh, during these protests aren't allowed in the army. Like they're not allowed in the armed service. Like that's how that's how sort of brutal uh, I guess the modern day police officer can can be if they should they want to be. <laughs> that and, uh, uh, that fucking yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah, that, it's, uh, it's wild. So. That sucks. Yeah, it feels. Yeah. I was gonna say it feels kind of fucking stupid to do. Po- I've been doing podcasts all weekend during this, and I just feel, it just feels so fucking stupid. <laughs> like yeah, I'm like talking about video games and Stanley Kubrick while like you know you know, systematic, uh, oppressive governments are being completely dismantled. It's, it's quite a, quite a crazy time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, I guess this will come out, this will come out in a little bit, uh, I guess a couple days from now when we're recording. So I'm sure this shit is, there's still going to be rioting and whatnot. Um, who knows? Who knows what will happen by then, but, uh, solidarity with everyone who's been, uh, you know, out there uh, protesting and and uh, you know looting uh, targets and and whatnot. Yeah, this podcast um, stands by you. And <laughs> we uh, do, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. We did. I did. Uh, you know, I we were talking before we started recording, but uh, I think that you and I we we both agreed that we're as two two white guys, not necessarily. Uh, in a position where I think we should be, uh, you know, preaching about about anything. But I do want to say that we are, we 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 are definitely in support of of the folks that are that are protesting. And uh, I did retweet. If you want to chip in some money, I think I retweeted um, the bail, uh, all the different bail funds for for people that got arrested for protesting. Yeah, um, on and our, you on know our account. I would say donate money as best you know if you, what whatever you can whatever means you know like whatever your like a uh, uh, financial situation allows you to do I would say 
uh, find ways if you can't donate money to support. Um, even if it means, you know, checking your own implicit biases. One of the, one thing I did, Eric, was I took a, a, a two hour long racism workshop. So anti-racist workshop, uh, just because, and you know, the money of course, obviously went to, you know, a, a, a woman of color, uh, who was running the workshop. And it's, uh, it's a way that you can combat this too, is, um, you know, working on yourself <laughs> and your own racism. So, uh, you know, just an option, whatever. That's the last thing I guess I'll say about it on here. <laughs> yeah. But in retrospect, I will say that like, uh, just the idea of a movie like full metal jacket and two guys like us talking about it, it does sound a little <laughs> stupid right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. It's, you know, uh, yeah. Well, um, I mean like even more stupid was me talking about video games yesterday. Like, <laughs> like, Hey, so what about Mario? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Like, Who cares? But uh, you know, this, 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 will this podcast episode will live, will live, will live on, uh, uh, you know, well, uh, well past the, the end of, uh, Police brutality, hopefully, which hopefully ends very soon. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, right. You know, not feeling too hopeful. But, uh, yeah, so this is a Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch podcast. Uh, we are, uh, we're getting to the end, Jeremy. We're, we're already on Full Metal Jacket. We've got two more Kubricks, two more Lynches. I mean, technically, one of the Kubricks is AI. I don't even... That's not I even a even Kubrick. Know if you would it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a Spielberg. Well, it's I would say it's a, a Spielberg Kubrick collaboration film. It's a Spielberg. It's a Spielberg. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that term. More there yeah, should be good. more more uh, Spielbricks out there. Spielberg, go find some more like hidden notes of Kubricks where he was talking <laughs> about projects he wanted to make. Um, yeah, this yeah. is the second to the end of Kubrick's official run. Uh, it was Full Metal Jacket, 1987 war film. We could call it an anti-war film, I think. Pretty safe to say, anti-war film about the Vietnam War. Uh, Eric, how What was your? How, have you seen this movie before? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I saw this when I was in high school. Um, I think this is probably the third time I've seen it. Uh, not a big like war movie guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I so I never, I never. This is a, this has never been one of my favorite Kubricks. I will say the most recent, the when I watched it recently, I, I, I did enjoy it more than I had previously. But it, it it's still, it's, it's to be honest, it's kind of low on the Kubrick ladder for me. But I right. do, I do enjoy it. I like, I do, I do think it's good. Um. So yeah, what do you what? What's your history with? Full Metal Jacket. I am similar where, you know, I did... I have seen this movie a bunch, maybe five or six times in my life, but again, never... It's never been one to me that, like, I put in even my top five Kubricks, I wouldn't say. That being said, after watching it this last time, kind of like you, I was like, oh, this is... It was kind of both worse and better than I remembered. Like, things about it, I really appreciated, you know, watching it in my early 30s now compared to maybe my early 20s. And then parts of it, I totally, like, had a really rough time watching it. Because I was watching it yesterday, and I think just even, like, gunshots were pretty triggering to me 
just with what's going on in the world around us. It was kind of a rough ride, actually. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I could see that. I, yeah. I did watch. I did watch it before the uh, the, the the murder of uh, George Floyd. So I that might have. Um, I didn't have that on my mind right uh, while I was watching. Um, and, and just I like, should, yeah, the race, oh, the race, the ra- I would say like even like a lot of the race stuff in Full Metal Jacket uh, was tough to get through. Um, especially yeah. now, but beyond just like the vi- the violence, which you know it's it's pretty violent. It's actually more violent than I remembered it. Yeah, it, it, it's very violent. Um, so if you're if you're just tuning in and you're wondering, you didn't hear our last episode about what we did with The Shining. So we skipped The Shining. Uh, and if you're kind of new to the podcast, we did a whole two part episode on The Shining um in october that you can find uh one part is about sort of the conspiracies around the shining and the other part is more about the production and the plot uh great episodes but we 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 figure we don't need to do an episode of the shining again so soon so if you're looking for that it's back there uh in the archives you can find it uh i believe it's from october sometime around halloween i think yeah october last year yeah yeah, uh, yes, yeah. so this is, uh, I guess we're getting to the point where Kubrick is, like, starting to space out his his films a little bit more, yeah. like, Clockwork Orange to Barry Lyndon was, like, 71, and then 75, Barry Lyndon came out. It wasn't until 1980 that The Shining came out, and then seven years later, after that, Full Metal Jacket, and then, a whole 12 years later, we get Eyes Wide Shut, so he's right. he's kind of, like... I don't know if he's taking taking his time more with with these later films, or if he's. Uh, 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 I d- I do know that after Full Metal Jacket, at a certain point, he went through sort of like a weird, uh, sort of uh, less productive phase of his life for a little while. But I, I I don't know I don't know what that's about. He's kind of like he's kind of like slowing down because I mean, it was every it was every like two to four years for a while there we were getting a Kubrick, right? Which is like um. I don't know. That is that is pretty spaced out, you know, for for a lot of like working directors today. I think most directors try to pump one out every year or every two years. Two years seems to be about the right amount of time for like you know your average working director. So yeah, when you're getting into like seven years and twelve years, I that is significant, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, and I got to imagine. Uh, I'm sure this was uh, pretty highly anticipated. Yeah. Uh, but I, I got to imagine the anticipation for Eyes Wide Shut must have been insane. I don't remember yeah. the release of that film, but um, I barely do. But that because that was '99, so it would have been. I would have been in middle school, and I and I do kind of remember a lot of the heat surrounding Eyes Wide Shut. Like that was like it was very controversial. I think people wanted to give it an NC-17 rating. I think he also might have gotten one had he not changed some stuff. I think there was it was probably even more explicit before. But that's a really exciting movie. I'm really excited to talk about Eyes Wide Shut. This I'm also excited to talk oh, about yeah. Full Metal Jacket. But I guess Eyes Wide Shut to me is in my top five. Um, and I guess just the subject matter appeals so much to me, and probably to you too, right, Eric? Because uh, oh, I yeah. mean, just all the Epstein stuff and like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very it's it's a very sort of like conspiratorial movie, which which you know we we all know I love, but uh, yeah, Eyes Wide Shut might be my number two, I think. But yeah. uh, 
We'll we'll talk about that. Yeah, I think I would agree that Full Metal Jacket probably isn't in my top five either. But I, I, I do. I I think I like this more than I like A Clockwork Orange, though. I gotta say, at, at interesting. Least yeah, as I've aged, I think uh, I think I get a little more out of it. Um, but yeah, so this uh, came out in '87, uh, co-written, uh, directed, and produced by Kubrick, uh, starring Matthew Modine, Arlie. Uh, Ermy, is it Ermy? Lee Ermy, yeah. Ermy, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Adam Baldwin. Uh, screenplay by Kubrick, Michael Hare, and Gustav Hasford. Uh, it was based on Hasford's novel, The Short Timers, from 1979. Now, I heard that Hasford was uh, not easy to uh, work with. <laughs> I don't know if you, if you heard anything about the, the No, whole. you know, this is actually kind of a blind spot for me in my Kubrick uh, trivia and knowledge. I mean, other than I know that the film was shot not in Vietnam. It was shot in England, right? Um, uh, I think so, yeah. And so, yeah, that's the only thing I knew is that, like, he got everyone together to shoot <laughs> in, in the UK, which is, like, yeah. kind of a weird... Um, kind of a weird way to do a vietnam film but uh oh and then the 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 d'onofrio stuff i knew that where he like gained like an incredible amount of weight to play private pile which is crazy because he doesn't even really look that big no not yeah you're right you know he but he gained 70 pounds for the role which was a, a movie weight gain record okay at the time yeah it beat out raging bull where de niro put on 60 pounds for the for the role did the Always Sunny guy beat that? Oh, maybe. Good good question. I wonder. I, it um, just dawned on me. Maybe that's why he did it to like, because it's funny. It would it. be funny for him to break that record for Telesunny. <laughs> that is very funny. I, I I wonder, you know, I wonder if uh, if he actually did. I, I know that like, um, it's not for a film necessarily. So I wonder if that, that's why it's not in this piece of trivia here, but okay. Um, yeah. So the, uh, so here's a little bit about the Hasford stuff. So it says at some point Kubrick wanted to meet Hasford in person, but, uh, Hare advised against this describing the short, uh, t- the short timers author as a scary man <laughs> and believing that he and Kubrick would not get on. Uh, nonetheless, Kubrick insisted and they all met at Kubrick's house in England for dinner. It did not go well. And Hasford did not meet with Kubrick again. <laughs> Wow. Uh, also, during the filming, Hasford contemplated ta- contemplated taking legal action over the writing credits. Originally, the filmmakers intended for Hasford to receive an additional dialogue credit, but he fought for and eventually received a full credit. Yeah, so, fucking good. All th- you know what I mean? Like, not <laughs> like we we this this story comes up again and again with Kubrick, where he keeps trying to fuck people out of stuff, and you're like. Yeah. You're like, yeah, good for this author. I mean, I wonder what happened though in that dinner. I I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that. Yeah, I I, I don't know it. Um, I don't know. He does. I will say this Hasford fellow sounded a bit a bit uh, like a wild man, but uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know too much about him. Uh, so yeah, so the film sort of the genesis is Kubrick uh, originally wanted to work with Hare on a uh, a Holocaust uh, film but decided to do one on the Vietnam War instead. Um, according to Kubrick, he was drawn to uh, Hasford's book's dialogue, finding it almost poetic in its carved-out stark quality. 
initially, Hare was not interested in revisiting his Vietnam War experiences, and Kubrick spent three years persuading him to participate in what the author described as a single phone call lasting three years with interruptions. <laughs> which is a great quote Uh, Hare says the director was not interested in making an anti-war film but he wanted to show what war was like Um, I I think the end product leans more towards anti-war at least from my interpretation but you know who knows we talked about this a little bit before but uh, Kubrick's like a little bit politically ambiguous to me like oh I, right! Like what is he exactly trying to say? Yeah, what's what side he what side he's on? I think I speculated in a previous episode. I forget what movie we were talking about. That perhaps he's like a libertarian kind of kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, I wonder. You know, it, that's a great that's a, that's an interesting thought to think that if, if <laughs> Kubrick were alive today, he'd be like hella canceled. <laughs> yeah, but but I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I know I know that like. Kubrick to me very much represents truth, like uh, like unabashed, unadulterated truth. But it is his truth, right? It's the truth that he sees. So it's like, um, you know, when you watch Full Metal Jacket, to me, it's like he's kind of showing you the absolute horrors of war, and they're not always just the massacres, but they're the stuff like the way that prostitutes are treated, the way that, you know, uh, the Marines talk to each other, the insulting way. Like, I think, I don't think he truly hates the military, you know, but I think he is like the, the goal of full metal jacket is to kind of shock you into understanding exactly how brutal war can be. And the ironies, the like layers of irony that exist inside of it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so whether I, I, but you know, there is a quote, I think it's a Scorsese quote where he says like, you know, a director can't truly hate his subject. And I, I, I believe that where like, if you're making a movie about something, even if it's Hitler, there's something about it that you have to be at least intrigued by, you know what I mean? And I think that for Kubrick, he's clearly like really invested in getting all the, you know, all the equipment, right. And like the way things actually happen, the way, like the way that the soldiers would, not unlike saving private Ryan, where it's like an attention to detail, right. Where it almost feels like military pornography, but it's like, uh, it, it, I think it ultimately is an anti-war film and carrying with it an anti-war sentiment. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so too. Um, that's kind of, I, it would be crazy to like, it's, to me, it would be crazy for someone who's like neutral about war to watch this and then be like pro war. Oh, you know for I mean? sure. Like, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Who knows? Who knows what his real intentions were? But uh, that's what Wikipedia says. So now on to just some Jeremy, just some random little tidbits of trivia for you, and uh, feel free to chime in with any that you that you have found. But uh, Modine described uh, the shoot as difficult. Uh, apparently Becton Gasworks, which is one of the filming locations, was a toxic and environmental nightmare for the entire crew. Asbestos and hundreds of other chemicals poisoned the ground and air. Uh, at one point during the filming, uh, Ermi had a car accident, broke all of his ribs on one side, and was out for four and a half months. Uh, I forgot to look up how long this the filming took for this. I imagine it was... A long process. If 
if a yeah. guy could like recover from broken ribs in that in that time frame. Oh, I don't know. And also with Ermy his age, you know, too, being a factor. Like he was yeah. he's like an older man here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Ermi, uh, went to Kubrick and asked for the role of, uh, Sergeant Hartman. Uh, in his opinion, the actors on the set were not up to snuff. When Kubrick declined, Ermi, uh, barked in order for Kubrick to stand up when he was spoken to and the director instinctively obeyed. Ermi got the role. I think that's fun. Uh, <laughs> I like the <laughs> idea of him just screaming at Kubrick like an army sergeant and, and Kubrick like, Without thinking, like obeying him. Yeah. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, one scene cut from the movie showed a group of Marines playing soccer. Uh, the scene was cut because a shot revealed they were kicking a human head yeah. instead of a soccer ball. Uh, according to an interview with uh, D'Onofrio, the production schedule for the film was uh, so drawn out that the lead actor, Matthew Modine, got married, conceived a child with his wife. The child was born and then turned one year old, all during the course of the filming. Wow. So I guess that answers that question. It, it, it took, <laughs> took a long time. It took a hundred years, yeah. Uh, $300 million budget, grossed $46 million worldwide. Uh, and then this is this was my favorite piece of trivia, is during the filming. So Kubrick is like what I've learned uh, from... Uh, Specifically, the the Stanley Kubrick and me book is he was like a huge animal guy. He had tons yeah. of cats and dogs and stuff. And I guess during the filming, a family of rabbits were accidentally killed. And Kubrick uh, was so so saddened by this that he canceled the rest of the the shoot for the day and sent right. everyone home. Uh, yeah. Which is which is kind of sweet that as he's making the- like a very graphic war <laughs> war film. <laughs> well, it's like uh, I. It, it humanizes Kubrick in a, in a way that I like. So I'm glad that this yeah. story exists because it makes like, to me, I'm not just from the way that Kubrick's attitude is, I, I would have, you know, thought he would have intentionally harmed animals on his sets. Not intentionally like he gets off on it, but like, like I, I would have assumed he was the type of person who w- would be willing to do something like that. To get yeah. The for the shot. sake of for getting the, a good yeah, shot or right. something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our, uh, there's a couple of, uh, other pieces of trivia I really like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger turned down the role of animal mother. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. In order to star in the <laughs> running man, which is like his okay. famous sort of first thing. I also love this story about, uh, uh, Kubrick and Lee Ermy where, uh, on set Ermy's doing his, um, his, uh, you know, yelling at all of the Marines in the beginning, right? Where he's doing his famous monologue where he's walking around and, and giving all the Marines what for as they like, as they enter in. And I, I guess everyone thinks Lee army, Lee army's uh, dialogue was all improvised. Apparently it was more like Lee army basically wrote it with Kubrick, like what he was going to say. But at one point um, uh, he talks to, you know, private cowboy and, uh, yeah, he's throwing out some pretty like uh, absurd, like uh, like uh, I don't know, like gay insults at 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 cow at cowboy, and he says the, the line like, uh, you know, I bet you're the type of guy who blah 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 won't even give a guy a reach around. And Kubrick immediately yelled, "Cut!" Went over to Ermi and asked, "What the hell is a reach around?" <laughs> and Ermi politely explained what it meant. Kubrick laughed, and then they reshot the scene, and he told Ermi to keep the line. 
Uh, I love it. Yeah, it's just a good, it's like a good onset. Uh, it seems like that would have been a really fun onset, you know, I don't know, moment to be like, to be there when Ermi's doing his, his shit for the first time. I also think like, you know, in the scene, we'll get to it in the movie, but like when Private Pyle's laughing at Ermi as he's screaming in his face, uh, I, I think that would have been me in real life. If, the, if I had been in the... I don't think I would have been able to hold it together if someone yeah. was yelling yeah. shit like that at me the whole time. Because, yeah, he's kind of like an insult comic a little bit where he's just roasting these guys mercilessly. Yeah, I will say, like, um, I get... We'll talk about, we'll talk about it. Because the film's, you know, obviously it's famously kind of in two parts. And, uh, you know, I do like both parts a lot. I think that what I... What the second part lacks that I really love about the first part is the humor. Right. Is like, it's like very, this very funny dynamic. And it's, you know, it's also very serious and stuff, but uh, we don't really get that in part two. Um, No, they try to be funny in part two, but all the humor is just, it's just so dark that it's like really, really hard to, you know, even entertain laughing at it. Cause I mean, like some of the jokes are like, "Oh, look at they captured a, they kept like a dead Vietnamese body." Isn't that funny? <laughs> or something? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, ugh, kind of frightening rather than than funny. Like, w- like I don't find Animal Mother funny at all. Like anything he says. <laughs> no. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. What do you want to do? You want to dive into the uh, the plot? Hell yeah! Why don't uh, Why don't you want you want to take part one and I'll take part two? That sounds great. The Wikipedia is conveniently divided into part one <laughs> and part two for us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's incredibly accurate, too. Uh, so let's dive in here. During the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, a group of boot camp recruits, uh, recruits arrive at Paris Island. Uh, the ruthless drill instructor Hartman employs forceful methods to turn the recruits into combat-ready Marines. Uh, among the recruits is the overweight and dim-witted Leonard Lawrence, whom Hartman nicknames Gomer Pyle, as well as the wisecracking J.T. Davis, uh, who receives the name Joker after interrupting Hartman's speech with an impression of John Wayne. Yeah. So, you know, lights up. Opening scene is, a, is I would say, a very iconic uh, shaving of the heads, right? Yeah. With, that, with the song, it was it, uh, Tell My... Sweetie, I'm going to Vietnam. What is the? the song? I recognize the song, but I don't. I don't know what it's called. Um, it is called "Hello Vietnam" by uh, okay. by Johnny Wright. Yeah, and it, so this is a this is a very famous scene. You know, was it you that was talking about that made a Jarhead joke last episode? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, Jarhead would go on. I actually don't mind Jarhead. I think it's a it's an okay film. That movie would go on to do a lot of stuff that Full Metal Jacket did, like co- like directly copying it. One of the scenes is this opening scene where instead of that song, they're playing uh, G- uh, "Don't Worry, Be Happy," and it's all of the Marines getting their head shaved before they go off to boot camp. And okay. uh, that that movie structured very much like Full Metal Jacket too. All that to say, it's 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 iconic and has been like recreated by other film by other very famous filmmakers. Um, it's yeah. sort of this like what oh, like this meditative, almost like kind of uh, tongue in cheek or ironic uh, look at just the goings on of like what it takes to like send a boy a, like a young boy off to be a soldier and the first thing you do is strip them of their identity which would be their hair yes 
Um, yeah. So what? Uh, you know. So I guess. Um, I don't know how many. You said you've seen this a few times before this. Yeah. No? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I had forgot. I guess I had forgotten like how how much I like this first part. I actually, I really like this first part and I, I, I sort of, I don't know what it would be, but I think if the film was uh, just sort of a continuation of that story, mm-hmm. um, which I guess it kind of is, but I don't know if it, if it, uh, I guess if, if, if this part was like the whole story, you right. know what I mean? Like it right. was just like longer, I think I would have enjoyed that more than what what we ended up with because I, I I do really like this. I love the beginning. Um, I just love the Ermi uh, Ermi. I could just watch all day screaming at screaming at people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, D'Onofrio is just so fucking funny, and uh, man, you just feel like you feel bad for him because you like you can't you can tell his character like can't help himself. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, but also you, when you see him like doing something where you know he's about to get like shouted at, you're like, "God For damn sure. it, dude!" Like, yeah, <laughs> just fucking chill out. Yeah, they they really do that a good job of putting you in the position of like both people, where you're so empathetic and you you really hurt for. D'Onofrio's character but then you're also yeah you're also on Joker's side too where you're like man what the fuck like come on like we're all gonna get busted dude like what's wrong with you uh yeah I Ermi is magnetic I mean there's no like this is what you think of this when you think of this movie you don't think of part two you think of Ermi like that's what (laughs) Full Metal Jacket is to me it's it's this whole part one with Ermi and and D'Onofrio I think another reason why Eric you're like part two just doesn't have the same magic as part one is because you know I mean spoiler alert they kill off the two most interesting people (laughs) at the halfway point so you're stuck with Joker who sucks he's not a good (laughs) character (laughs) um uh so I know that they uh they had a draft, like there was a draft for the v- Vietnam War, but I'm wondering, like, was it ever? Did I miss? Was it ever explained, like, if any of these guys were there because of the draft? If they were all there because they were drafted, or if some of them wanted to be there? Was oh, there that's any, a like, good question. I th- I'm pretty sure. That? I'm pretty sure they're all drafted. Yeah, that's kind of what I assumed, but I wonder. I wonder with some of these guys, where I'm like, you know, it seems like a person that would that would have just. I, it does make a difference. Like it, it is, there is like a difference between someone who like, like if, uh, if Gilmer Pyle had like want, had like signed up himself and like gotten himself in, in into this situation, right. it would be different than if he like what I think we both assume that he was drafted and he's mm-hmm. kind of like maybe not fit for this kind of environment. Yeah. And then we slowly watch him sort of transform, transform into a monster. Right. Um, I don't know. I was just wondering if I missed something because I think that's... No, you're not given that information. But I just, from our understanding of history in the Vietnam War, you'd probably have to assume that they were drafted. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. What did you think of, like, the cinematography in this movie? I I think this might be uh, up there with the best that Kubrick's ever pulled off. Camera the cinematography wise. is some of the best. Cinematography yeah. is is very good, and I'll also say like 
even my my least favorite part about war films is like the battle scenes and stuff. Yeah. And even that stuff, even that stuff is like great. Like all the location, like it, it all look, it, it's all really, really, uh, you know, interesting to look at. Yeah, uh, I thought I thought so too. I was like, I was that that is what I didn't notice about the film the first million times that I've seen it. You know, like I I didn't realize how. How even for Kubrick, this was sort of a, a level up where we hadn't seen him shoot a movie quite like this. I mean, the mo- the camera movement alone, I think, is really unique. I think The Shining is also a good example of him doing really great camera movement. But yeah, um, but like Barry Lyndon doesn't have much movement. It's it's very um, it's all, everything's on a tripod or still camera for the most part. Yeah, and he's kind of like slowly zooming in and out yeah. of things. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of the most terrifying uh, parts of this movie for me is uh, is just the bat, like, the, you know the bathroom in the in this like <laughs> complex they're staying in that's just like yeah. two, two walls with toilets, rows of toilets with like yes. nothing surrounding them to block privacy. Everyone's just taking a dump in, <laughs> right next yeah. to each other. Yeah, that's a nightmare. Total yeah. nightmare. Um. Yeah. So, uh, when Pyle shows ineptitude in basic training, uh, Hartman pairs him with Joker. Under Joker's supervision, Pyle starts to improve, but Hartman discovers a contraband jelly donut in Pyle's unlocked Footlocker. Uh, blaming the platoon for Pyle's infractions, Hartman adopts a collective punishment policy. He will punish the entire platoon for every mistake Pyle makes. Uh, one night, the recruits haze P- Pyle with a blanket party blanket party i guess that's a thing uh in which joker reluctantly participates do you know what yeah but you want you know what they mean by blanket party right here i'm i just clicked on it so it's a form of corporal punishment hazing or retaliation conducted within a peer group most frequently military uh the victim is restrained by having a blank blanket flung over him and held down while other members of the group strike him repeatedly with yes, improvised yeah. flails. Right. This, so, okay. like, this is the soap scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, like, uh, yeah. how heartbreaking, right? It never... That never ceases to not get to me, that scene. Yeah, it's really it's really hard to watch. Uh, blanket party is, like, too pleasant of a term. <laughs> for <this>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, following this, Pyle seems to reinvent himself as a model recruit, uh, showing particularly expertise in marksmanship. Uh, this impresses Hartman, but worries Joker, who notices Pyle taking, uh, talking to his rifle and believes he may be suffering a mental breakdown. Um, yeah, so uh, what do you think of this sort of transformation? Um, it's, it, I, I was really watching it for, like, I guess, the, the, lang- like the cinema language of it, like how, how they were communicating these things, and it's so subtle. Like the transition of him turning into a madman is so it's so well done. It's so it's such a um, I don't know, like a masterful flex of filmmaking prowess where he's like, like you'll just see like little shots of the rest of the platoon sort of looking over at Joker every now and or I'm sorry, looking over at pile every now and then just a little like uh, suspicious, you know, but not like they don't overdo it. They don't play their the hand too hard. And then you see him get better and better at being a Marine, but yet his expression is getting worse and worse. So he's becoming more and more like uh, of a, of a madman looking guy. 
while yeah. at the same time getting better at, and actually getting more respected by Lee Ermey and Joker and every and everybody. So it's sort of like I don't know. It is it is sort of like a. I don't. It was impressive. I got to. I got I, I to. I got to admit. It was like. It was like one of the mo- more impressive. Like transitions done in this. Like you've seen like a, a character transform over the course of a film, but to do it in this like kind of hyper, um, like uh, it, this is like this is like very contained and fast. Like they needed to tell this story fast because they wanted to get on to like the part two of this. So they had to show something that happens over months and months, maybe even a year happened in like a very short amount of time. I think they did a good job. Uh, what did you think of all this like pile stuff and all the, all the basic training stuff? Uh, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's like, uh, yeah, it is kind of like crazy. Um, it's very like cut and dry, I guess what's going on. Like there's not really like, you don't have to read into it too much. Cause it's it really, he, he, you know, Kubrick likes to sometimes be a little, uh, mysterious with, with his messaging, but this is pretty straightforward. Like, uh, you know, this guy's kind of going through this transformation cause he pretty much has to become this like evil, uh, fucking mean killer, violent killer guy. Uh, if he's going to fit in, in this sort of situation that he's in, um, so yeah, I think, I, th- I mean, I think this whole, I'll just say, I just think this whole first part is so- sort of like perfectly executed. Um, so the recruits graduate and receive their military occupational specialty assignments. Uh, Joker is assigned to military journalism while most of the others, including Pyle are assigned to infantry. Uh, during the platoon's final night on Paris Island, Joker discovers Pyle in the head. Uh, loading his rifle and ex- executing drill commands and loudly recites the rifleman's creed. Uh, this awakens the platoon and Hartman who confronts Pyle and orders him to surrender the rifle. Uh, Pyle shoots Hartman dead and then commits suicide while Joker helplessly watches in horror. Yeah. Also, yeah, an incredibly patient, dark, brutal scene kind of ending part one here yeah um uh still just again a masterful work by kubrick like just just an incredible sequence um it it always marvels me just like where the subjects are placed in frame for this and like how this scene is shot like that sort of like very head-on with gomer pile directly standing in the middle of the frame while he's reciting his rifleman's creed in the bathroom is like it's just it's like it's terrifying <laughs> yeah yeah um, um what did, like I, yeah one thing that i I had, I had also not noticed about this whole first half was the music like how well the music is done like all of the um anytime the music would come in you'd hear like the cellos and like the uh with the cello it's like a cello swing with a, a big bass drum where it's like whom 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 it's like it's like a uh like a, almost like a marching syncopation, but it's done. It's cut in with Lee Ermey's like, like military instruction and stuff. It, it's just like, it's it's really cool how well this film is edited with music. Oh yeah, Dude. I will say I I, I actually th- I think I like the music in part two better. Um, yeah, well they, they like use the a lot more part. like licensed music I think in part yeah. two. But oh, yeah. um yeah one uh, one scene that I would also like to talk about is um. 
the the Christmas scene, which uh, that had never really uh, stuck stood out to me in in earlier viewings of this. But do you know what I'm talking about? Where he it's Christmas and they're all singing Happy Birthday to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that was uh, like really uh, good. That was a really good sequence. Like like his monologue is pretty intense. Like it's very confusing. Like what his <laughs> what he thinks Christianity is and like. Compared to the core where he's like, your heart belongs to Jesus. Now your ass <laughs> belongs to the core. And uh, just like uh, they keep heaven stocked with fresh souls. Like that's their job. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's intense. You know, this is the, uh, this is the second Kubrick film to feature the song. Happy birthday, uh, which I guess was, notoriously expensive i think or for some reason this song isn't in a lot of movies or wasn't at that time uh but the other do you remember what other movie it was in jeremy oh no not at all uh 2001 when he's singing to uh i think his daughter oh okay yeah yeah um all right so why don't you uh, so we ready to this move on to part two? Movie, is it? Yeah, no. Yeah, take no. us into. We're we're listening to these boots are made for walking. We're uh-huh. watch, watching a, a Vietnamese woman walk towards a some ar- some U.S. Army gentleman. What what yes, else? Happens? Some GIs. Okay, so we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> 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 we want to move just like uh, move on. It's probably best that we move on from that. I mean, that is yeah. like. Uh, some of the most like uh, I guess anytime you've ever heard a racist do an impression of an Asian person it is directly stolen from this scene <laughs> right <laughs> like like the uh, yeah. like just like the miso horny stuff like that's where this comes from which is Im- important to remember and easy to forget I think so uh, but that's how this starts out and then like the, the I guess like uh, the the two men also steal the camera right and then do the karate moves in front of yes. Yes, and then Joker sort of makes fun of them by doing his own like b- a bad Im- impression of a Bruce Lee type. But uh, yeah, it's as pr- as it, yeah, it, it, incredibly problematic and offensive. I think the point here is like this is what it was like to be in Vietnam. Okay, I guess well, fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I believe you. It was bad. Uh, in January '68, Joker, now a sergeant, is a war correspondent in Don in Da Nang, probably Da Nang. Something like that. Sure. Donning, donning. Uh, South Vietnam for Stars and Stripes with Private First Class Rafterman, a combat photographer. Rafterman wants to go into combat as Joker claims he has. At the Marine base, Joker is mocked for his lack of the thousand yard stare, indicating his lack of war experience. They are interrupted by the start of the Tet Offensive as the North Vietnamese Army unsuccessfully attempts to overrun the base. Uh, mm-hmm. the following day, the journalism staff is briefed about enemy attacks throughout South Vietnam. Joker is sent to Fubai, accompanied by Rafterman. They meet the L- Lust Hog Squad, where Joker is reunited with Cowboy, with whom he had gone through basic training. Joker accompanies the squad during the Battle of Hue, where platoon commander Touchdown is killed by the enemy. After, after the Marines declare the area secure, a team of American news journalists and reporters enters Hugh to interview various Marines about their experience in Vietnam and their options about the war. 
anything in yeah. this whole sequence stand out to you? So, uh, I guess, like, the thing about um, Modine's character, and I do like Modine in this movie, uh, you like, I guess for, like, a, a journalist guy uh, <laughs> who's, like, um, you know, he's not, he's not like a... He's not like these other like uh, fucking guys who are who are like trained like killing machines or whatever. Right. Or whatever. He's like, sort of he's like a little, a, uh, a lefty asshole, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> like, a little that's bit. How they, that's it, how they paint him. Um, I guess he like there's there's like he's like too I don't know like uh, he should be more scared or something. Like he's like <laughs> he's just the whole time just like being like a cocky little like uh little dude and it's it's i don't know it's weird it just doesn't seem realistic to me is the thing i'm like i don't really mind that sort of like character trait but he doesn't seem like uh at all worried or like concerned about sort of the situation that he's in it's also um, like it's, he it's seems weird. like a different character from the first half like he does yeah for sure yeah and i guess you know, there is something about Joker that you kind of learn to like in the first half, but it's almost like it almost betrays itself in the second half because in the first half he's like it's like his the fact that he's a like I guess the fact that he's brave is what um you know, Lee Ermey finds charming about Joker. And then the second half it's more like he's uh maybe we're supposed to believe he's just like burnt out and he's he's fed up with it and he sees through the bullshit and sees the irony of war for what it is. And, um, cause he's very disrespectful to his like superiors in the journalist space where they're all pitching, I guess, articles. And, um, he makes fun of people constantly and he's very brave even in the face of like, uh, animal mother, who's like a, a, a known killer with a huge, just strapped always. He's a glued to this enormous gun. So yeah. it's uh yeah I guess we're supposed to find him like charming and kind of ro- his like rogueness sort of like charming but I guess yeah to me it's you're right I think it comes off as a little confusing a little unrealistic and then like also the all of his John Wayne stuff doesn't make sense to me what is that <laughs> what, yeah <laughs> what is the quote he keeps saying where it's like I'm is that you John Wayne is this me uh-huh. what is that I, I even looked up what it meant and I still couldn't figure it out. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will I'm say I didn't forgot know what it meant either. I forgot that he uh, is like a journalist guy, and it, it, when I was watching this, like, uh, you know, like when you realize that he's like going to be a journalist kind of guy rather than a soldier, like you realize that like pretty late in the film, you know, in part one, like pretty much towards the end of part one. And it's like the whole time building up to that, he's almost been, there's no, there's been no like clue or anything that, uh, that would lead you to believe that like, that's what, like, I, I thought he was, I thought he was like sort of a, like a more of a just fucking meathead, like, right. Uh, army guy, yeah, soldier guy. Um, I don't know. It was, it's kind of weird. Like it kind of like, comes out of nowhere it's a little it's a little odd they they don't like set it up anymore 
Because when he's looking over Gomer Pyle, it's like, oh, well, let's have like a good someone who knows what they're doing, like watch watch Gomer Pyle, right? Uh, and and you know, give him give him uh, an education. But it turns out this guy just ends up being like a cocky like journalist who is it actually isn't even that good at being a journalist, right? <laughs> yeah, he sucks at being a journalist. Also. There's no indication from the second half that what happened with Gomer Pyle and the drill sergeant even affected him at all. Like, yeah, and I, I didn't, I don't need like something to beat me over the head and with like, I don't know, references to what had already happened. But it just making that matter more in the second half, I think, would have been something I would appreciate it because it kind of just makes it feel like literally two different films mashed together. Um, yeah which is which is not like the worst it is just like wouldn't it wouldn't it have helped if these felt more connected in some sort of grander way but um but yeah you know kubrick is throwing a lot of thematic things around kind of willy-nilly and it's easy it's easy to miss some of them it's also easy to get hung up on the the wrong ones like like i remember like one of the one of the conversations i just found excruciating was like the military guys in the tent where joker's kind of talking like a um you know john wayne to this african-american guy and they're all being so racist and none of the conversation even really feels like it matters (laughs) like like why are we seeing this right now other than just to like get more like oh yeah it's uh the way these dudes are to each other is terrible um but yeah, okay. So, uh, the the following day, the journal. Oh, oh, one more thing. I did. I do love the uh, when the reporters come, and then we see all of the the like the mama umau mau mama umau mau like that when that yeah. song comes in, and then we see them like uh, doing their like slow pan across the battlefield, like behind the tanks and stuff. Like I yeah, love when good. I love Kubrick filming another film crew. That was like really. That was really interesting <laughs> that he was acknowledging yep. like cinema <laughs> in that moment. Um, okay. While patrolling Hugh, crazy Earl, the squad leader is killed by a booby trap, leaving cowboy in command. The squad becomes lost and cowboy orders eight ball to scout the area. A Viet Cong sniper wounds eight ball and doc J the squad corpsman. Um, so I guess the order that this happens is eight ball runs out there, gets shot. And then they and then the, the medic who's like, I'm going to go help him also runs out there and gets shot. But even though they're telling him not to go, uh, believing that the sniper is drawing the squad into an ambush, cowboy attempts to radio a tank support to no avail. The squad's machine gunner, animal mother disobeys cowboys orders to retreat and attempts to save his comrades. He discovers there is only one sniper, but doc J and eight ball are killed when doc J attempts to indicate the sniper's location the radio, uh, the radioing for support. While radioing for support, uh, cowboy is shot and killed through the gap of a building. Um, yeah, this is um, this sequence is particularly effective. Very tense. It kind of reminds Very me of intense, like when yeah. Saving Private Ryan is at its best. You know, what, like there's a sniper sequence in that movie. Have you seen that movie, Eric? Uh, not in a long time. I Do you remember, remember anything? You don't remember anything about the sniper sequence? Nah. Okay, yeah, it's like uh, anything with sniper to do with snipers. I think is like a c- cinema gold, <laughs> in my opinion. Like, it's just like, um, it's just like a, a short. It's like shorthand for just like tension, 
is that you cannot mm-hmm. see the enemy and they are taking you out one by one. It's it's almost like a horror film at this point. Um, yeah, what did you think of all this stuff? Yeah, it's really it's really intense. Uh, yeah, I like I I actually I I liked all all this stuff uh, towards the end here quite a bit. That's that is my thing with war movies. It's always it always like uh, it always like results in this sort of like big like epic sort of like battle or like intense like war scene uh that just all of the action of it just kind of like almost like bores me or right becomes like less about story and more about action where like this is it kind of is consistently like you're you're kind of getting both and it's uh the action is so well done uh and it's so earned like every every time someone gets shot it's like it's earned yeah um that it's uh it's it's pretty good. I, I I I will say that this is maybe like I guess I would have to think on it a little bit more. But this is maybe like in my top three, probably probably in my top three like war movies. I guess. Yeah, it might probably be even my top two. Yeah, it might even be that for me. Also, I I do think films like Saving Private Ryan are better. Again, different war, different circumstance, different you know, but not a not uh. And yeah, I guess a little different era to maybe nine ninety nine versus eighty seven, but I I do think like I don't know like the the use of the steady cam following Wolf like running with Wolf Mother or I'm sorry uh, with Animal Mother in the uh, <laughs> in the uh, fucking well you know what when he charges the sniper and and we get this like a beautiful shot of a, a steady cam running backwards with him as, as we see him from the front, just screaming like that's such an iconic, <laughs> such an iconic image of, a, of yeah. a man just, just, just like spraying the area with bullets. And then we get it from behind and we just see the building behind him. Just like, like just getting riddled with bullets as he's just running towards this, uh, the, something, uh, you know, a threat he can't see it. It's, it's, it's quite good and uh, pretty harrowing. Um, oh yeah. So animal mother assumes command of the squad after, uh, this is after a uh, cowboy is killed and leads an attack on the sniper. Joker discovers the sniper, a teenage girl and, and attempts to shoot her, but his rifle jams and alerts her to his presence. Rafterman shoots the sniper mortally wounding her as the squad converges. The sniper begs the squad to shoot her, prompting an argument about whether to kill her or leave her to suffer. Animal mother decides to allow a mercy killing only if Joker performs it. After some hes- hesitation, Joker shoots her. The Marines congratulate him on his kill as Joker stares into the distance. That, that, that thousand yep. yard stare, I guess, huh? Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah the I Marines suppose. march towards their camp singing Mickey Mouse March. <laughs> Joker states in narration <laughs> that despite being in a world of shit, he's glad to be alive and is no longer afraid. Uh, and then yeah. Paint It Black kicks us off into the credits. <laughs> And Great! We're, we're I, I gotta say, one of the one of the better like music credits credits music uh, moments. It's pretty I think good. so too. Yeah, pretty just like one. right when it kicks into, you get that beautiful written, uh, directed, and produced by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I think anyone, anytime anyone does a whole war movie without doing that one, uh, what is that one Rolling Stones song? Give me shelter. Give anytime me shelter, any yeah. anyone makes a war movie without g- give me shelter in it is a, is a victory. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. Or, or to have a whole Vietnam movie happen and there's no CCR. <laughs> yeah. In it yeah. Is like, is that's like psycho. Like there's like run through the yeah. jungle is like the anthem or, uh, or all along the watchtower, you know, something like that. Yep. Like, I feel like it's always stuff like that. 
you hear in these films. But uh, yeah, instead we get Surfing Bird, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> yeah. All right, Eric, what do you think of Full Metal Jacket? It's good. <laughs> I stand by what I said earlier. You know, it's it's uh, probably not in the top five uh, Kubrick Kubrick films of mine, but that's not to say I don't I don't of course like the film. I definitely like it more than. Fear and Desire. I probably even like it more than The Killing and Killer's Kiss. Uh, I do. I do not. Uh, I do like Paths of Glory more. I think. I think yeah, Paths of Glory is a, is a is a better film. In my I think opinion. it's a better that, anti-war film too. Yeah, yeah. You're probably right. I actually, t- you know, to be totally honest with you, I think I might like Spartacus more. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Um, Spartacus is always going to be tough for me just because of the length. I'm always like, yeah, oh, that's, that's the thing. A little about long. It. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's good. It's, it's a good movie. It's, uh, it holds up, you know, even, even after, after all this long. I mean, I don't know. I mean, to me, like the, if this was just a short film uh, with part one, I might even like it more. Like if there just wasn't a part two at all and it was just this like 40 minute long like short film uh, and and that was it. I don't know. There's something about part two where I'm like, yeah, it gets like pretty suspenseful and it's, uh, you know, there's some good good cinematography and stuff. Uh, but I don't know. It, it, it kind of, uh, it almost takes away from the first part in a weird way where it's, I, I think there just could have been some more, like, connection there between, like... Like, you're right. Like, Joker seems to have not really been affected by this, like, crazy thing that he witnessed. Um, and maybe that maybe that is the point, um, that he wasn't affected by it or something. Who knows? But uh, I don't know. I guess I my, my whole thing is, like, uh, I feel like part one has, like, a clear message... And I feel like part two doesn't. And I and since part two is the last part, I'm kind of like, well, I guess the whole movie, I don't really get the message of the <laughs> entire movie, you know. And sure. I think that that's that's probably that's that's probably part of why I don't like it as much. But what do you feel about Full Metal Jacket, Jeremy? You know, I uh, it was it was definitely hard hard to watch this go around, just considering everything that's happening sort of outside our walls um you know with the protests going on in the in the killing of innocent uh, uh like innocent black people i i guess for me watching a film that's like very much set in a different era where you know people are being very racist to each other it's also hyper violent and hyper insensitive to to human life I guess like to me it was just it was just a tough watch and I wouldn't recommend it right now. I, and I was realizing this it, kind of like you know uh, enjoying art especially like violent art or, or really challenging art can actually be kind of a privilege, right? Like we have to almost be in like a good state of mind to even be able to interpret and like kind of take down these sort of beefier, maybe more um complicated, you know, type like like uh films right like uh you know you can't watch a horror film necessarily right after you know your parents die i think is like a good (laughs) like it may not it may not just feel appropriate to do and and i think that you know hopefully we'll get to a point where we can make stuff and it not feel so icky to like digest certain kinds of art in certain films 
but that you know that's going to take a long time and that's like we're going to have to get like to a place where i don't know like this <laughs> like we're not like literally all being like super a huge historical moment is not like taking place right outside of our our door to like fully enjoy this like anti-war sentiment you know like vietnam hyper realistic story so that's kind of where i'm at with it i'm just like i'm just like yeah it's it's i can recognize like the technical prowess of it i can recognize how technically good it is i don't want to watch it i did what didn't enjoy watching it this time (laughs) but uh you know maybe uh maybe i maybe i'll go back on it later on and be able to be like you know what actually i was just in a really the world was in a really you know complicated place at the last time i saw this and it's actually a lot easier to digest now but uh yeah, yeah i mean yeah. i'm watching it again tonight right yeah exactly well i mean it's just like for a podcast you know i i i have to watch a lot of challenging stuff for ours and other podcasts and it's like uh you know, it's 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 just par, you know par for the course, and it's is also a privileged point of view to have of like, well, yeah. Now that this is going on, I can't watch all my dark my dark stories. But it's like <laughs> it's like yeah, of course, of course not, and um, yeah. But I think I I think this why I, I, in some ways I did like it better than the than the last time, or better than my memory. You know, like uh, the the use of music and the use and like just the cinematography alone, like really like. It's just so impressive, and uh, you get a lot of really cool early performances by like, you know that you know Adam Baldwin and Vincent D'Onofrio, Lee Ermey, obviously. Yeah, well, you know, Jeremy, you'll be you'll be happy to hear that we're going to lighten things up next week with the discussion on uh, Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I cannot wait for that. That's going to be great. That is, you know, that is the Lynch for me that started it all. So. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, it's gonna be uh, that'll that'll be uh, that'll be a good conversation, uh, and then we will, of course, do Eyes Wide Shut, uh, Inland Empire, and then uh, AI, and then we're 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 on to the return, baby. You know, we only got like a month or so until the return, which is which is it's going by fast, my man. It's going by fast, and then you know we're gonna have to start talking about what the hell we're gonna do next. Oh my god, um, yeah, that's a good point. I I, I no this idea. is a I something that we've talked about before and this is kind of what I'm leaning towards pitching uh and I I I mean I think we'll have to if we have like a few different options we'll have to of course do a poll and see what everyone wants us to talk about but I've been I've been really wanting to uh revisit some PTA lately. Oh, um, that sounds great. Yeah. I, I would love to do a, a series on PTA, but we'll you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, Jeremy. Uh so, is there anything you uh, you want to get out there uh, before we sign off for the day? No, nah, not at all. I think I don't know if we mentioned our Patreon before, but it's still free. No, I just realized we forgot. Yeah, it's still. Uh, it's I guess it's still one dollar, right? Yes, patreoncom slash Eric and Jeremy. We do weekly bonus episodes on tale f- tales from the crypt, uh, the k- '90s comedy movies, random movies that people tell us to cover, uh, Hollywood conspiracy theories. Great time over there. Much more relaxed. Uh, you know, I, I typically take my shirt off for those episodes, and right. it's, it's, it kind of invites a very, a very uh, fun 
uh, very enjoyable environment. I I have to say it's a, it's a great time over there on the Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. One dollar uh, will get you those bonus episodes this month. And then in July, I think we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to go back to our, our usual uh, prices. So. Uh, if you've ever wanted to dip your toes into the Patreon, now's the time. Dip them uh, in. Dip them. Yeah. The water is, well, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, Norma, I'll see you in my dreams. Mm-hmm.